The arrival of the COVID-19 vaccines at the hospital where I work felt like a glimmer of hope, a small reprieve from the daily anxiety of feeling exposed and vulnerable while taking care of patients. When the time came for my appointment, though, I wavered. As a physician, I understand and respect the privilege of being among the first group in the United States to be offered the vaccine. But as a pregnant woman, I was left trying to interpret vague guidelines developed without data from clinical trials about people like me. I ultimately decided to get the vaccine, like other pregnant healthcare workers, despite feeling anxious about making this decision without adequate information about its effectiveness and safety for both me and my baby. Choosing to be vaccinated against COVID-19 without an affirmative recommendation to do so made me feel vulnerable, not protected. But it doesn't have to be that way for others. The nation has an opportunity to study the safety and efficacy of the vaccine in the pregnant healthcare workers who are choosing to get it now. But I'm afraid that opportunity is being lost without a systematic effort to track them. Hello, and welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, the founding editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with illuminating or provocative perspectives about the life sciences writ large. This week, I have the good fortune to talk with Catherine Mezzacapa, a newly vaccinated expectant mother an internal medicine resident physician at Yale New Haven Hospital, and Ruth Faden, the founder and longtime director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Catherine and Ruth, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Catherine, you opened the episode by reading from your first opinion called The Effect of COVID Vaccines Will Finally Be Tested in Pregnant People Like Me, which Stat published just a couple days ago. What were you thinking, and equally important, what were you feeling when you got your first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine? So I spent much of last spring, the spring of 2020, taking care of patients with COVID-19, many of them severely ill. And I was so excited when the vaccines became available, both for myself and for my colleagues and the community. But when the time came for me to go get my first uh, dose in December of 2020, I felt honestly really nervous about what people would think of me. I was a visibly hmm. pregnant woman walking in to receive a vaccine that everybody knew had not been studied in people like me. And that anxiety came from my own anxiety about feeling like I was participating in an experiment in a way that this hadn't been studied in pregnant women. And I was choosing to do so based on what I knew. And I thought it was a good decision, but I didn't actually have the data to go on. And that was not a comfortable place to be in. You know, you were in a, an experiment in a sense. Yeah, I was. I was really among 
You know, I realized the first percents of the whole U.S. population to receive the vaccine and among the first pregnant women to receive the vaccine. And I felt really lucky to be there, but also felt like it was scary in a way it didn't have to be. Is this your first youngin? It's not. I have a almost four-year-old who is becoming funnier by the day. Um, it certainly keeps us on our feet, um, but certainly my first pregnancy during a pandemic. Did having another child make it easier or harder for you to get the vaccine? I think that it made the context in which I was making my decision more complicated, but in some ways more clear. I think like many women, the fact that I became pregnant didn't remove me from my other responsibilities or my other roles. And one of those roles is being a mother to a child who still needed to interact with the world. One of those roles is being the daughter to grandparents who we relied on to take care of this child and who needed to come into our home. And one of those roles is being a resident physician, so taking care of patients and therefore being exposed. And so, you know, several of my major roles in life of being a caregiver to others didn't stop just because I became pregnant. And therefore, my immunity and my protection from COVID became all that much more relevant. Have you gotten your second dose yet? I have. How did that go? It went, it went fine. I had some of the <laughs> expected side effects. Um, my husband is also a, a resident, and I sort of knew what to expect after seeing him get his second dose of the vaccine. And so <laughs> I hydrated ahead of time, and I knew I might be out of work the next day, and I, I let the chief residents know that it was coming. And I certainly felt a little bit under the weather, like many people have after getting the second dose, but I wasn't surprised, and so it didn't scare me. Hmm. Ruth, have you started down the vaccine road? I have. I have. And I've also had my second dose. And my experience was very much like Catherine's. Hmm. Well worth little, the price. Yeah, yeah a little I, bit under well, the weather. Yeah, yeah, more than a little bit, maybe. But <laughs> under, under, the, under the weather, but, but definitely kind of uh, at peace with it, knowing that it could happen and knowing that it was, in my view, a very inconsequential price to pay for the privilege of getting a precious resource in a time of scarcity. I'm married to a midwife and I hear her talking to her patients all the time and they will say, you know, I wasn't feeling so good. And she says, well, you know, it's working then. Um, so she tries to give it a positive, a positive spin. Let me just say, I mean, for this audience, it probably doesn't need to be said, but if you don't have a reaction, it doesn't mean it's not working. So I've been in, <laughs> a, a, I've been in a lot of contexts where people will go, oh my gosh, you know, I felt fine. Does that mm. mean it was a dud for me, right? Ruth, the ethics of vaccinating women who are pregnant or lactating has been a focus of your research for quite a while. And, and I'm going to hazard a guess here. You've developed some strong feelings on the topic. A first opinion you wrote in 2018 with your colleagues Ruth Karen and Carly Krubener might give readers a hint of your feeling. The headline was, an indefensible decision, not vaccinating pregnant and lactating women in an Ebola outbreak. So that was a timid position that we took there, <laughs> uh, a, a, a very timid position. Look, we've been struggling with this for essentially ever. Uh, and uh, Catherine, the point you made about feeling as if you were being experimented on, which is, of course, very forceful and a little unnerving language, is, is largely accurate of the experience of pregnancy and medical care for 
as long as we've had essentially uh, evidence-based medicine or the, the buildup to evidence-based medicine, data is always lacking on safety in pregnancy. And uh, efficacy is less of a concern in, in many respects, but safety data, always lacking. Uh, dosing data, generally lacking. So that relates to efficacy. And as much as we had hoped that in this pandemic, it would have gone differently, and it has gone differently, and I can speak about that in a little bit. It hasn't gone as as differently as was needed to keep women out of the situation that Catherine found herself in. Hmm. So in, in that essay, you were, you were very clear. You wrote that um, up to 90% of pregnant women infected with the Ebola died from it, and nearly 100% of those who were pregnant either miscarried or their baby died soon after birth. So if, if that's the case, why would someone not want to vaccinate pregnant women? It's insane, right? In the context of Ebola, it was pretty much an open and shut case, unless there was very little community transmission. So if your chances of becoming infected with Ebola were going to be very small, then yes, you would start to say, okay, let's calculate this through. But that was not what was going on at the time that we wrote the piece, uh, you had epidemics raging. And for reasons that we don't need to unpack here that hopefully we'll never see again, there was resistance to using the Ebola vaccine in pregnancy. And one of the most compelling um, quotes I think I've ever heard done by some wonderful medical anthropology uh, NGO group uh, interviewing women in the context of the outbreak was a, a pregnant woman basically saying, you're protecting us to death, right? That in your effort to keep us safe, and especially our babies safe, you're killing us. Now, this is a different context, because although pregnant women are at elevated risk of serious disease relative to other people who are the same age, say, and that's cons really concerning, right? It's, it's really, really concerning. It's not as dire Right, as the Ebola context. And so it complicates decisions for, for, for Catherine and other women who are situated you know, with the choice. Catherine, you were familiar with kind of this sort of exclusion before you started thinking about it for yourself? I was familiar with it, um, both from having been pregnant myself and from the perspective of being a general medicine trainee um, who, you know, there are jokes about it, but truly every time a a patient comes in who's pregnant, there's sort of a panic alarm that goes off about how are you going to treat the other medical problem they've developed. Um, sorry, not to say that pregnancy is a medical problem, but, you know, what medication are you going to choose? Is it safe? And you go to look it up and it's almost always unknown. And so you're left in this position with a patient saying, listen, I think you need treatment for, you know, Antibiotics, we have more information on because they're so commonly used, but I think we need to treat this condition. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of, there isn't any, or there isn't a lot of information about whether this is safe in pregnancy. We think it shouldn't be a problem based on what we know, but this is where we are. And it's a really uncomfortable position to be in now that I've been on the other side of that conversation. Yeah. So Ruth, what's what are what are some of the rationales for not including pregnant women in clinical trials? So some of the rationales are are good, right? And and some are not. 
Okay, and it depends on what stage of, of clinical trial you're talking about and what the intervention is that you're evaluating. But his, sort of the historical argument originally was really bad. And so the original sort of canard was women cycle. And when they cycle, they sort of mess up the study. And therefore, we don't want to study X drug in X new investigational uh, drug in pregnant women because we could get confusing results, which you know, you take a half second and you say, okay, will you plan to use this drug in women if it is approved? And if the answer is yes, which it almost always is, you know, on black, you know, bracketing what treatment for prostate cancer is pretty much generally the case, right? Uh, then, gee, you know, they're going to actually cycle in the real world. Don't you think it would be good to get that information? So there was that battle to fight first. Uh, and and at the time that that battle was being fought, and it has been largely won, and I hate to use the military analogy, so maybe I'll stop with that from now on. But pregnant women were the one group that, as the sort of consensus built, and I'm talking now in the 1990s especially, consensus built that, of course, we needed to study and evaluate new drugs and new vaccines in, in women. That What were we thinking? Of course, that's the case. And it actually predates before the 1990s, 1980s. Uh, as well. And this is part of a, a general sort of cultural attitude towards pregnancy, that pregnancy is a state where everybody has to sort of walk around eggshells, especially the pregnant woman herself. Right? Uh, it is the case ethically, right, that it is more complicated than pretty much anything else in the ethics of research with human beings, because you've got two entities, and one of those entities can't consent. So we've got this whole model, right? And in pediatrics, you have one entity, but you have a position that says one parent in the U.S. can consent for research involving children. Somehow, we never got to that space with pregnancy, and I can talk about the regulatory stuff on the side if, uh, if we like. The incentives for drug and vaccine developers are about zero, right? First of all, they're worried about legal liability, right? Um, Things go wrong in pregnancy and things go wrong at delivery. And uh, there's this long, it's a bad expression to use in the context of COVID, but there's this long tail of liability, right? Also, from a market point of view, there's not a lot of incentive because clinicians are going to do what clinicians have always done, which is muddle through in exactly the way that Catherine's described. And I don't want to make people nervous who are pregnant and listening to this. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of experience that physicians have developed over decades with some drugs for some conditions and feel pretty comfortable that it's fine if you're pregnant and you come to pregnancy with it. Uh, depression is a history and you're on certain depression medications, for example. There's a, a, a kind of growing and appreciated recognition that it's all right if you stay on these drugs and far worse if you go off them, similarly with HIV drugs and so on. And there are a whole bunch of conditions we could go through. But nevertheless, it remains the case that the evidence base is just you know, wildly below the evidence base for other adults. Catherine, you've got a background in public health research. Did you put some of that to work as you were thinking about getting vaccinated? Yeah, absolutely. So um, prior to going to medical school, it actually it was not my plan to go to medical school initially. I, um, I did a master's degree in public health with a focus in epidemiology and biostatistics. And so I think that has really served me from the perspective of being able to interpret things for myself. And so I have in my mind, I always have this feeling of 
why don't we use observational data better? Why don't we use our real world experiences better? And I say are very collectively, the real world experiences of patients, patient registries, um, the real world experiences of rolling out a new vaccine in a group of people. And I find that when I'm on the other side as a clinician in training, and we are asked to evaluate, review, pick apart research, um, it becomes really hard for people to trust anything that isn't the sort of very clean, very perfectly designed, randomized, controlled trial, this sort of evidence base we're used to seeing for new treatments. Um, but I certainly feel that I was able to, both by virtue of my um, access through the university and by virtue of my background and training, you know, look at the primary data myself and think about how these vaccines were made and how they work myself uh, and use that to make a decision for myself that I was comfortable with. Ah, but there, but there was the problem. There's no data. Right. Well, from the perspective of uh, thinking through the sort of biological background um, and the theoretical plausibility of could this be harmful or would this be harmful, which uh, for the most part, people thought, I don't see any reason to think it should be. But when you, that's not a super compelling thing to hear, you know, like, well, I don't, I don't, there's no reason for me to think this is going to do something terrible, but really we don't know. It's not really like, what just makes you feel super confident going into making a decision, especially when you're pregnant. Um, but I, you know, at the same time, I was able to, because I work in a hospital every day, talk with colleagues in the Department of Pediatrics or um, in obstetrics and gynecology or talk with that one maternal fetal medicine person that I know or somebody who does immunology research because I'm at a big academic institution and there are people who this is all they do. And, you know, by piecing it all together, arrive at a conclusion I felt comfortable with. But again, the, the end result is that all of the guidelines say things like, well, we're not going to force you to withhold this from pregnant women or... <laughs> we're not saying it's absolutely forbidden, but we cannot recommend it, you know, kind of right. thing. And that's not, that's just not the kind of recommendation you want to hear if you're the person going through with a treatment. I, I think the recommendations are a, maybe a little more charitable, a little more supportive uh, than that. But you, the, the crux of the dilemma is at the policy level, Catherine, you know, Catherine, exactly what you face at the individual level. The policymakers had to make their calls, right, based on, uh, in some cases, not even completed or reported DART findings. They've, they, I'm oh, sorry, uh, developmental and reproductive toxicology and non-human animals studies. That's now clarified for the vaccines that have been authorized for use in the U.S. and in Europe. And also, actually, in other countries as well, the DART data are apparently available for other vaccines also. But it's difficult uh, for the public health authorities and for the regulators to figure out what to do based solely, right, on um, on reassuring, but still animal studies, and 
a reasoning way, reasoning through just as you described, you know, are there biologically plausible reasons to be concerned here? And here's where I think, and I really want to give a shout out to the relevant professional societies, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Physicians uh, really came through uh, both publicly and behind, uh, behind the scenes. I think it's okay to say this. So publicly, they came out, and I, I you reference those um, those opinions in your in your piece, Catherine. I think they're fabulous, especially for women who are just the opposite of who you are, right? Uh, and that's going to be more and more more and more states now are allowing pregnant women to receive the vaccine. They've made them eligible for vaccine, along with other uh, that same problem again, other medical tissues, medical along with medical conditions that puts you at elevated risk. We got the best we could get. I think under the under the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mean to overplay um, the degree of uncertainty. I think that it's one thing when you're used to sort of medicalese and like reading th- the, what's what is what is written between the lines. If um, a professional society recommends um, not withholding something or recommends the use in um, people with higher risk or recommends that patients speak with their provider and are free to make a decision. But what's between yeah. the lines there is that we think it's safe. Go ahead. But yeah. I think if you were a, a lay person reading that language, it might feel a lot less reassuring than it feels to me because I, I know what's in between those lines there. I think you're exactly right, Catherine. And I mean, what we all want is an evidence base that allows the policymakers to do a to give a full-throated recommendation. Catherine, do you know any uh, do you know any pregnant healthcare workers? Were you able to commiserate or get information from people like you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, so there were plenty of people for me to talk with about this. I remember early on when we learned that we were going to have the opportunity to receive the vaccine, talking with people a lot about, well, what trimester are you in? What trimester will you be in when, you know, your name comes up on the list? My institution followed an alphabetic model for fairness kind of thing. Um, And so it was like guessing at like how many weeks out could you schedule the appointment? Because, you know, mentally it felt better to do it later in pregnancy, but we didn't want to lose the opportunity. And so there was so much calculus going on in each of our minds behind the scenes um, because we felt excited and we all felt intellectually that this was the right thing to do, um, but emotionally very insecure about making that decision. So it was great to have other people going through the same thing, but there was just so much in each of our minds that, um, and just so much anxiety about it, really. Ruth, you must have heard countless stories like this, Mm -hmm. interviewing women and... Yeah, no, no, no. And uh, I was about to ask Catherine if she knows of any healthcare colleague who chose differently. I don't actually. I I know of several people who, um, before the CDC and um, ACOG, the um, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, really had come out with their language about the vaccine and pregnancy. I know several people who when they were speaking about it with their obstetrics providers were advised initially not to get it or were advised to wait until 
after delivery, if they were late in their pregnancy, perhaps. And then who, once that language changed in the public recommendations, had repeat conversations with their providers and sort of renegotiated. And it was a time where it really felt like it would be reasonable for providers of different sort of risk tolerances and comfort levels to recommend either way based on Mm. what we knew, because what we knew was little. What we technically knew was quite little, right? The recommendations evolved. Their thinking did too, but it happened really quickly. I mean, we're talking about a matter of four weeks' time over which this changed. It really is right now important for for people to be able to think through their personal circumstances. And uh, so, Pat, you were asking about conversations with pregnant women and pregnant people, you know, now. And you started out early on. I thought it was so persuasive and compelling, Catherine, when you were talking about your different roles and how your roles didn't stop. People really need to think about their personal risk, which is different. It was hours before we published uh, Catherine's essay, which had originally been titled something like, um, I'm pregnant, I got vaccinated, why isn't anybody studying me? And we were about to go with that when we learned that Pfizer was announcing its uh, vaccine trial among people who were 24 to 36 weeks pregnant. So we had to change the headline, which was good. Is that announcement, is the, you know, the, that trial finally arriving, is that too little, too late? I mean, I'm sure it's going to yield useful information. Is it too little, too late? It's late, but it's not too little. Interesting question is, is how it's going to be allowed to go forward in the U.S. as a placebo, as a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, as more and more states are making vaccine uh, available, making pregnant women eligible for vaccine. So that's a whole other conversation. But the trial is um, involves the U.S. and nine other countries. So it's it's a big. It's not big in numbers, but it's it's nicely distributed globally, which is really important for lots of reasons. So, you know, some accrual of, of information about the vaccine from a phase three trial is, is appropriately uh, needed, right, before you can really launch into the kind of work that this Pfizer trial will do. But it didn't have to wait till now. And for that matter, you know, where's Moderna's trial? Uh, and where is J&J's trial? And you know, where where is AstraZeneca's trial? And they all say it's coming, uh, but they've been saying that for a while. And Catherine, you were in your essay, you were calling for something different, that a, a trial is great, but you had a different vision. Yeah. So I think having been put in the position of making a decision without trial data, you know, that was, that door was closed. Um, but then you know, when I received my vaccine, I was invited to participate in the adverse event reporting system um, from the CDC. And there there was this sort of large-scale registry of healthcare workers receiving the vaccine happening. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I must be, just based on looking around and the people I know, one of thousands of pregnant healthcare workers getting these vaccines Um, And I just waited for people to beg to interview me and ask detailed questionnaires and ask all about my pregnancy uh, and, you know, ask to draw blood or or follow my baby after the baby is born. And none of that happened. And I was just shocked because I thought, well, listen, yeah, the, the opportunity to have had trial data before 
sort of doing what we always do, which is just acting on what we know and, and doing the best we can, um, has passed for me, right? But I, and I felt like I was in this sort of unfair position, but I felt like, come on, at least collect information on me so that the next round of people can have something to go on. What really drew me to write about this was my feeling that there was this huge missed opportunity. You know, I understand um, sort of intellectually why it's harder and why when you're in a rush, it's easier to um, to develop the new vaccine without first studying it in pregnant women and all of these things. And, and you sort of accept the realities. And, and I was accepting those realities for myself in receiving it. But then I felt like, well, there's this uh, massive opportunity, this like incredible natural experiment that's happening with tens of thousands of women, pregnant people receiving this vaccine, and no one is asking for more information from us. You know, like the hundred year floods that are now happening every few years because of climate change. I think that monumental force and others probably mean that we'll see other pandemics like this one in the not too distant future. What do you both think could help people that had to make a decision like you did, Catherine, not have to face it with such little data? Actually, I think I would defer to Dr. Faden uh, for the most part on answering this question, but. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I mean, and I think it's in 2019 that a group of us came out with 22 specific recommendations directed exactly at that problem, Pat. That was, uh, we, were, we were worried about this, Starting with what was happening with Zika, we got really concerned and we're working on this during Ebola and we came up with 22 specific recommendations so that, right, what Catherine is facing wouldn't happen with the next big one. Unfortunately, those recommendations were not all taken up, but the recommendations included, right, and now I think we'll have a better chance of, of seeing them adhered to given all the realities of what we're facing, but they included getting the DART studies done way earlier than they were done, setting up for really good uh, pharmacovigilance and registries. And and there, you may well still get a call, Catherine. I, I've been checking into where that's going. And there is a registry being set up uh, by VSAFE for pregnant women. Unfortunately, they've only called back, I think, 1,600 women so far, and there's 20,000 plus in VSAFE. So it's not, again, right? And and clinical trials, you know, phase two clinical trials on immunogenicity and safety being done as soon as they could possibly be done, and prospective observational studies. And it's not either or. There are questions that can only be answered in or can be answered best in that, you know, gold standard double blind controlled trial. But there are lots of good questions in line with what you were saying earlier, Catherine, that can be asked and answered fairly well with prospective observational studies and even with registries. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot more work to be done in this area. Um, I hope this conversation helps move the needle a little bit. I'm so grateful to both of you for joining me today. Ruth, may your work continue to change minds and Catherine, to paraphrase the unforgettable Max in Where the Wild Things Are, May the wild rumpus of having another child be everything you hope it will be. <laughs> I'm sure it will be everything we expected and nothing we expected, just like the first time around. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. Thanks to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Thanks to executive producer Rick Burke. We'd love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>